Thanks for the tropical weather update there, Bill. Our guest today is Brian McNoldy. Brian was born and raised in Reading, Pennsylvania, and has had a general interest in science since childhood. His passion for weather was sparked at age seven by the big nor'easter snowstorm of February 1983, and then further spread by Hurricane Gloria in September 1985. Brian has maintained a blog on tropical Atlantic activities since 1996, then was selected as one of four hurricane experts for a New York Times blog from 2007 to 2010, and has been the tropical weather expert for Washington Post's Capital Weather Gang blog since 2012. In January of 2012, Brian took a position as a senior research associate at the University of Miami's Rosenstiel School of Marine, Atmospheric, and Earth Science to continue his career in tropical cyclone research. Brian, welcome aboard. Great to have you here on the conference today. Thank you, Hal. I appreciate the introduction and the opportunity to be here and talk, talk hurricanes. Right, so you and I actually have the same extreme weather event that triggered our interest, that big snowstorm in the Northeast. You were seven, I was eight, and I was just up the road from you in Lehigh County. Um, what do you remember from that storm as a seven-year-old? Uh, well, being very impressed by the snowfall rate. You know, by, by that time, I had, of course, been around for a few snowstorms, but that, that one was just amazing at the the rate of accumulation. Uh, and, and I think at that age... Obviously, you're always excited about snowstorms because it means you might get out of school. Uh, but it was even more exciting because I am a, a couple years older than my sister. <clears throat> and she was not really allowed to go out in it because the snow was higher than her head. So I was allowed out. And of course, that, that was also a huge perk. I remember I remember walking with my sister out into the back patio and I think the water was like up to my chest. I mean, I was in second grade, but it was I think we got 25, 26 inches of snow. I had never, you know, imagined anything like that in my whole life. Yeah. Well, it, it must be nice to be young. I was 34 and was on the first airplane to land at Reagan Airport, Washington DC at the aftermath of that storm and remember vividly having to tote my bag it's one of those old hard hardback Samsonite pieces of luggage, so it didn't have rollers all the way from the tarmac into the terminal in there. But I, I too, was very fascinated. Being a weather guy, you're always interested in snowstorms. So, Brian, why don't you give us a quick overview of what it is you're looking at with storm surge, uh, sea level rise, and, and other aspects of your work? Sure, Bill. Um, I, I, I think it's – I've I've always – enjoyed the um the the relationship i guess be, between hurricanes and sea level rise uh they're they they kind of aren't the same thing but they are also quite related um you know hurricanes of course have been going on forever um anytime you get a hurricane near a coast it's going to create a surge where you're just pushing that ocean water onto the land. Um, but in, in the background to that, we're gradually seeing ocean levels rise. And you know, in, it's, it's not rising at the same rate everywhere in the world. Um, and in fact, there are places in the world where it's not rising at all. It's actually going down, usually places far north where the Earth's crust is still rebounding from having heavy ice on top of it 10,000 years ago. So there's a lot of big picture things going on. Um, but here, I, so I'm in Southeast Florida, in my, Miami, and um, here we've been seeing about two, two and a half inches of sea level rise per decade lately. And that doesn't sound like a lot. Um, but there's a couple things to point out, though. Is one, South Florida is really flat. So when you start to add up those numbers over 50 plus years, it actually is a big deal. Um, and two, as it relates to hurricanes nearby and the storm surge they create, um, there you're generally talking in feet, not inches. Um, but if if you're at a place that just narrowly avoided a flood during a, during a hurricane well then you introduce another six or 12 inches 
of ocean just, you know, because time has passed and the oceans are rising. Now, all of a sudden, you do have a flood and you have an insurance claim and so on and so on. Um, and you could also have something where, okay, maybe you would have been flooded by a hurricane 50 years ago, 25 years ago even, uh, but now it's worse. Now you've more parts of your house are ruined by by the flood. So it, it's it's that combination, I think, that, that will be very uh, useful to, to, to explore. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, I always uh, get asked why, why are there differences in sea level rise, say, around the U.S. coastline and in the basins, and, and I'm not that sharp on it, so maybe you can help. Uh, yeah, I, I, I gather from, from what I've read locally is that the, where ours gets compounded by the continuing subsidence that's one of the highest in the country around the Gulf Coast, North Gulf Coast of Louisiana and Texas. But are there other factors that people should be aware of? Yeah, this is a great question, uh, and there, there is a lot going on. Um, so the, the example I gave is there are places in the world where apparent sea level rise is, is well, it's not rise, it's actually sea level drop, uh, because the, the land is actually rising quicker than the sea level is rising. So there, there is sea level rise around the globe, but there are places that, are, that the land is actually rising quicker than that pace. Um, but as you point out, there are also places where the effect of sea level rise is exaggerated because the land is actually subsiding. So you have whatever rate of sea level rise is going on, of, of actual sea level rise, but then you compound that with the land sinking. And so the apparent sea level rise is even more rapid. Uh, on the east coast of the U.S., the uh, the strength of the Gulf Stream actually plays a huge role. And that changes from one week to the next, from one year to the next. Um, so you generally see increased problems with East Coast towns. And they, they're more likely to flood. You're more likely to get the really high tide when that Gulf Stream is a little bit more either slow or, you know, uh, it, it doesn't always all move at the same speed, I guess. It's kind of a, a tricky thing. But uh, if, if the Gulf Stream is not moving as quickly, you tend to have ocean water essentially build up because there's ocean currents coming in behind it that are still transporting ocean water. Uh, but there's parts of it that move slower. And so it's kind of this... Uh, log jam of of ocean water off the east coast oh it's got a marine truck uh traffic jam so right <laughs> yeah i wasn't aware of that so uh is that predictable is that something that uh, oceanographers can uh input so that places like hampton roads the norfolk area which is highly vulnerable fluctuations in tide can can uh, uh be, be aware of it so they can take some preparations um I guess my answer would be kind of uh, there. There is active work going on that of the subseasonal uh, outlooks for the Florida Current, which is the little root of the Gulf Stream just off the east coast of Florida, kind of squished between the Western Bahamas and the coast of Florida, and then from there the Gulf Stream travels up the east coast. Uh, and there is work going on to be able to. Uh, look at, at, at the, the, the speed of, of the Gulf Stream. But as far as an operational product, I don't think that exists yet. Mm. And the, 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 the primary factors for the, uh, the sea level rise are the uh, transfer of the warmth of the atmosphere from glo uh, global warming into the ocean. Uh, and perhaps another factor would be the melting of uh, uh, land-based ice in Antarctica and Greenland. Is that that basically the two big factors. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. They they play roughly equal roles, mm -hmm. uh, and th th those are the two things that that basically create sea level rise. All these other factors that we're talking about, you know, like land sinking or rising or the Gulf Stream speed, those kind of provide a nudge up or down on smaller space scales. Um, but the the ocean as a whole 
is really just controlled by how warm it is. So a, a warmer ocean will expand and rise. Um, and then how much new water is being introduced into it, which is ice melt, right? Right. Uh, 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 do you uh, have you done any work with uh, 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 municipalities at all on, on on some of their longer range planning? So like like in places like where you live in Miami Beach, that that they're there, they're not going to disappear all of a sudden. How are they going to deal with the the rise? I'm not officially involved with any of that, but I but I know quite a few people uh, who are. We you know we we talk, we ask questions. Um, there aren't any great answers, you know, like long-term, how, how are we going to fix this problem? Uh, unfortunately, there, there just aren't any great fixes. There are, you can do a patch, a short-term patch, like installing a pump or pumps. Um, you can raise roads, you can do that sort of thing. And that gets you away from the problem in the near term. Um, but there's there's no end in sight to this problem. The the oceans are going to keep rising for the foreseeable future, hundred, two hundred plus years, um, and so if if we adapt to what where the sea levels are going to be in twenty five years, that's great. That takes care of our problems right now, um, but it's going to have to be revisited again and refixed in another twenty five or fifty years. Yeah, the, 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 and. The engineering uh, things that, that it, in theory would work to do it are, are almost monumentally expensive to where it's just not going to happen. Yeah, that, and that's a great point um, because there are, it, it, it's going to really control where certain people can live. It, the, the, the low-lying coastal cities will eventually only be something that the most high-income fraction of the population can afford. Uh, one, because those places are going to have to sustain this infrastructure, which is incredibly expensive. Um, and two, we're going to eventually get to a point where insurance is going to get either very expensive or not at all. Um, and so you're going to have the people who can either afford that very high insurance or don't need it. And so, yeah, it's, it's really going to change a lot of the, the, the areas on the coast. It already it, it is it is it, the hurricanes themselves uh, accelerate that in uh, uh, in post Ike world. I know some people that live on the west end of Galveston Islands that have pretty deep pockets, and they uh, uh, their their uh, flood insurance and, and wind insurance got to the point where they could buy their house over again in about ten years. So they just rolled the dice and dropped all their insurance. Mm -hmm. But that's not in the, the cards for most of us, and. Uh, uh, just this week, there was a headline in the, in the Houston Chronicle, I think it was yesterday or the day before, I've forgotten now which one it was, but uh, uh, something like one in 12 uh, uh, people had dropped their flood insurance from, from last year to this year with the change in the rating system that jacked up their rates. And, uh, and uh, it, it's... It's it's very it's very expensive now. I'm not even in the the old uh, scheme, which used the hundred year floodplain in or out, but I'm outside the five hundred, and and mine went up eighteen percent with this new system. Uh, and the people that are in the places that flooded, it'll keep going up at eighteen percent a year until it reaches what's roughly actuarially sound. And I think what what you're going to have is very few people are going to carry flood insurance. Yeah, yeah, I, I think you're right. And there's, um, you know, the, the problem has has been a long term one. It's it's that, as as you mentioned, um, the insurance markets, especially in the flood insurance world, um, they have not been priced high enough for a very long time. That market's just been going in the red deeper and deeper mm -hmm. because they're paying out more than they're bringing in over and over and over. Um, and so now it's, they're trying to catch up quickly and raising rates at exponential rates. Um, and it, you can, yeah, you can price people out of their own house just with an insurance policy. Yeah. I, I just, I wonder how it's going to get resolved. I mean, there's some people that have studied the, 
the growth on the coast and, and point to the availability of cheap government insurance as, as one of the drivers that allowed us to overdevelop in high-risk areas. And the correlations there, whether it's, it's legit or not, is, is hard to tell. People uh, like, to, like to live near beaches, and they also have jobs where the big port cities are. So, But it may have, may have exaggerated the growth in the areas that are highly flood-prone more than it should have. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, on the uh, when we were talking earlier before we went on the air, you talked about the residuals on the tides. In other words, from the sea level rise, they're almost always showing on the predictions that the tides being measured are higher than what the the astronomical predictions would be. Do they ever update those uh, astronomical tide predictions? It should be fairly simple to do. Yeah, um, I, I would say part part one is yes, and part two is not really. <laughs> um, they they do get updated, uh, and in fact, that an update is in the works. The current tide predictions that we use are using a 1983 to 2001 baseline, um, and so it is getting to be quite out of date. And the next one, which they're working on, it actually takes a few years to come up with a new one because it's carefully done at every station. Um, and there, there are a lot of stations that, uh, along the U.S. coast. Um, so it actually does take a while. It's a, it's a bit of work and a lot of human I- intervention in it. It's not just code that you press go and it runs in five minutes. Um, so it is a big deal, but it's expected to be released in 2025, and then that will cover 2002 to 2020. So it'll shift shift the baseline up, uh, you know, another 20 years. And the the reason it takes, or they they wait that long to do it, is there's actually a like a well, it's, it's exactly an 18.6 year um, oscillation. That, that the moon causes. And so tides naturally go up and down over this 18.6 year os- oscillation. And so the, the uh, time period that they use is meant to include one of those full oscillations. And so they, they wait for that to be over and then start the next period and do it again. So that's, that's why we wait 20 years to get a new one. Um, because if if you only include a piece of of that, you're 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 going to be incorrectly accounting for sea level rise or drop. Okay, yeah, kind of remember that fuzzy memory of learning that when I was in the Navy. They had us learn a lot about how tides work, and I remember that cycle. Uh, uh, do you know what the magnitude of that might be, and uh, uh, as far as inches on the tide gauge? Yeah, it, it'll it'll depend on where you are, um, but I think I mean I, I I've looked at it and kind of anticipated what it might be here in Southeast Florida anyway, and it, it'll probably be in the two or three inch range because um, you're effectively taking you know if if you think of the the midpoint of those ranges, um, you're you're effectively looking at like a 1990 and a 2010, you know like what how much did sea level rise between those years? Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in general, it'll be two to three inches for most places. Okay. Now, that that does mean that as soon as it's released, it's already out of date. <laughs> um, because it, let's say it's released in 2025 as expected. Well, the actual sea level in 2025 is already higher than that midpoint of 2010. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 impossible to keep it perfectly current, but at least it's it gives it a, a nudge every twenty years the right way. Um, so anyway, to, to get back to your original point and question, though, is when we look at the tide predictions from from NOAA, um, the observed tides are indeed almost always higher than those, and that's just for that reason. Um, and that's like a constant offset that we have. And then on top of that offset, uh, you know, you have any current 
conditions in the atmosphere and the ocean that can give it a nudge up or down. Yeah, wind, wind is the tricky thing here. Uh, uh, like right now, we've had a persistent northwest wind, and I'm pretty sure it's below prediction. I didn't look at it, but that yeah. drives water out of the out of the bay, and, and the tide gauges that are around it drop. Yeah, and so that that's actually an interesting thing. I, I've noticed that happen here too, where you can actually get observed water levels less than the tide prediction, which means not only do you have that negative factor of offshore winds, but it's negative enough to get you past the sea level rise contribution as well. <laughs> yeah. So how, uh, I see you're checking away there. What you got for us? Yeah, Brian, you know, you drive around South Florida, especially the Miami area. You notice if you look at a stone wall, you'll see all these holes in the stones, very porous uh, from the limestone rocks. What challenges does that face for, say, building a seawall to keep sea level out? Can the water just kind of go underground in a lot of ways in South Florida where maybe a sea level, or a, a wall would work better in another location, but maybe not as well in South Florida, perhaps? You're exactly right, Hal. Um, yeah, the, the, the quote-unquote rock underneath us here is, is a bit like a sponge. Um, so you can build a 15-foot wall around us and water will just come up th through the ground at, at some point, right? Do walls still take a place maybe if you're thinking more on a storm surge component? Like, I mean, is there still a, a place for seawalls there? Yeah, yeah. Um, when it comes to things like storm surge, which is a short-term feet of water influx sort of thing, uh, that is definitely where where, where walls are extremely useful uh, because the, you're not really changing the, the, the groundwater level that quickly. You're just trying to protect yourself from the, the, the ocean for half a day or, or a day or so during the storm surge. And then the storm surge is gone and you're back to normal. So the, the, the part that or the, uh, the reason why walls don't work for the gradual sea, sea level rise is the groundwater level is just creeping up and coming through the the uh, the stone. Right, it can kind of work its way through if it's given enough time. Yeah, right. Right, another question too. I mean, South Florida has this really catastrophic history of a lot of hurricanes, especially the 20s, the 40s, the 50s, right through about the mid-60s. And then like the 70s and 80s get really quiet when we saw a lot of explosive population growth. And I think that's when a lot of people, either they or their families or their parents, move down there. Do you get the feeling sometimes that people really understand, like, the vulnerability and the, the, the active and hyperactive climatology in South Florida when we go back far enough? Or do you feel like a lot of people just don't really have an understanding of that? Uh, yeah, I, I think for the most part, people don't appreciate what is capable here in South Florida. Um, We've been historically quite lucky recently. You know, we've certainly had some 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 hits, uh, and they they're, they're you know it, it, it's a huge deal when you have a, a major hurricane hit. Um, but comparatively, it's happening a lot less frequently than it did. You know, like 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 you mentioned, the twenties through the fifties. Uh, that that era w was really rough in South Florida. Um, in fact, there was, there was a, a year where there were two Category 4 hurricanes. I think it was within a couple weeks. Um, and so this, this idea of having one every few years, you know, we, 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 this is a, a good time to, to bring up this concept of a return period, an, an average return period, which we often look at for things like hurricanes and storm surges. You've, you've looked at it. <laughs> um, and it's and just to pick it, a number out, I'm going to just say, let's say South Florida gets a, uh, a hurricane impact on an average of once every three years. Well, that definitely does not mean that once every three years you're going to get a hurricane. That, that average is over 150 plus years. And sometimes you could have gotten five in two years or five in three years, and then you might go 12 years without one, you know, so it, that, that average return period can be pretty misleading for people. And lately, we've, we've definitely been on the low end of, of things. And it's, I think it's going to be an issue. 
Yeah, bro, I knew the 20s were active. I was just going through the list on NOAA's AOML website. Mm. I was shocked to see five major hurricane strikes in either southeast or southwest Florida from 1945 to 1950. That's five major hurricanes in six years. I was I, I was not aware that it was that active for, for some of these stretches like that. Yeah, yeah. It, it, and to have something like that happen now where this – you know, places like Fort Lauderdale and Miami and Naples and things, you know, th- those cities are enormously larger than they were a hundred years ago or 75 years ago. Um, so it's t- to have a return to that sort of an era would be just unimaginable. Really. I, I, I can't imagine uh, that, that people would be willing to stick around for it. Or I certainly can't imagine that insurance companies could live through it. I was going to ask you what you think the impact would be of just repeating, say, the 20s or the 40s. Yeah, uh, I, I think it would empty out a lot of these these big coastal towns. Um, it just it would not be a sustainable thing. I, I really can't. Even after 1992, uh, when we had Hurricane a- a- Andrew hit, um, that bankrupted some insurance companies, and they never returned. And of the insurance companies that were around then and still exist, they won't offer insurance policies here. It's not even like, you know, uh, uh, being one of these people who has to purchase wind, windstorm insurance, uh, your options are fairly limited. A lot of insurance, sorry, a lot of insurance companies won't touch it here. It's just their, their, their risk is too high. I wonder if it's going to collapse in Florida after Ian. I mean, we had a speaker on earlier this year from a former official with the Florida Insurance Board, and uh, it really didn't sound very good, the condition of the, the for several factors. But you throw that big hurricane in there, and uh, they're going to have a huge number of claims on windstorm in addition to the flooding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that is, that's just one you know, that again, there, there's no law of nature that says it can't happen another two times in 2023. It's mm-hmm. just, so yeah, if we do ever have an era like that again, with those repeated major hurricane hits year after year, mm-hmm. uh, I think that that could be a huge game changer where. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's pretty much uh, what Louisiana has gone through. Yeah. Of, and right. It's, and it's, not near since New Orleans wasn't hit as bad except for one Ida, but the uh, again that whole area there, uh, people are are uh, if the people that can move have been moving from what I understand, and I think maybe you'll start seeing that in Florida if you. But if you go another ten years with the sunny skies and no hits, it'll all be forgotten. Yeah, yeah, there is a very short-term memory when it comes to hurricanes. Brian, it's like you said, with return periods, you can get these clusters of activity and then long periods with no activity. Yeah. Um, and I, I was looking at this, you know, when pretty much at any time we, we look at hurricane climatology and, you know, here in Southeast Florida, and historically it is a commonly hit spot. But the last time a Category 3 or higher storm passed over downtown Miami was 72 years ago, it was Hurricane King in 1950. It was a Category 4 that passed right over. And since then, none. <laughs> it's, it's remarkable. Brian, so uh, Hurricane Andrew, pretty compact, right? Did downtown Miami get major hurricane winds, or was that really south of, say, Coral Gables down by Kendall and places like that? Yeah, it would have been really close in downtown Miami, probably upper end category two, maybe category three uh, in, in the downtown Miami area. Um, but yeah, kind of marginal. It, like you said, it was a very small storm. So even though there were category five winds in the eye wall, it was a really tiny eye wall and a really tiny storm. And with hurricanes, the wind field has an exponential decay away from from the strongest winds. So, you know, by the time you're uh, a few more miles away from, from that, that core of strongest winds, the winds are significantly weaker. And you go a few more miles away than that, and they're significant, significantly weaker still. Uh, so w- when you have a small hurricane, uh, it doesn't take 
too long of a of a stretch to be out of the worst of it. Brian, yeah. before the broadcast started, you were saying sometimes people, everyone thinks they went through Cat 5 wins in Andrew, right? But a lot of people did not, is what you're saying. Yeah, um, very few did. It was a, again, that the the actual eye wall, the the core of strongest wins was quite small, uh, and of course it did go over some people. And for those people, they actually did experience a Category Five hurricane. Uh, but most people in the Miami area weren't in that that narrow swath. Yeah, but it is still it was still pretty densely populated where it went. Just like Charlie, if it had. That had found a part a place on the coast which wasn't as developed, it would probably not be very memorable. But going through, you know, putting that much wind through a highly developed area, you're going to have a lot of damage. Yeah, yeah. No matter how small it is, Brian. Do you find that's a common thing that people think that they've experienced conditions that they haven't before? I mean, we talked about that with Andrew, but have you seen that with other storms? Yeah, for sure. I, I think that's. I, I think if you ask. 2,500 people on the street, you know, what, what hurricanes they've been through and, and, and how strong it was where, where they were, they would almost uniformly answer with the category of the hurricane, which is based only on the peak sustained wind in the hurricane. Well, but a very small fraction of people are actually under that eye wall as a hurricane moves ashore. Well, and that could be a crucial life-threatening interpretation, right? If if you're going to be in the eye wall of a Cat 3 and you think, oh, I've been through a Cat 3 before, it wasn't that bad, that could be a life or death perception. It, absolutely, yeah. It, it, just, just to use that that example, if you're under the eye wall of a Category 3 hurricane, you're, you're going to get those Category 3 winds, which is really bad. Um, but if you're 50 or 75 miles away from that, you could be getting a category one, uh, but in your mind, you're you're hearing that it's a category three, and it just hit you, and so you're that's just what you assume. But it it really is not true, and so you you are I think prone to uh, not quite grasp what a category three hurricane is if you weren't directly in the eye wall. Great perception, Tim. Do we have any questions coming in online yet? Uh, one that, that, that I want to ask, and that is, um, <clears throat> did Ian and all the video that came out of Fort Myers Beach, do you think that changed anybody's perception of what storm surge and, you know, what, what it looks like with climate change? And, 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 you know, when people see that and they go, oh, crap, this could be bad for me, wherever they happen to be. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks for the question. That's, I, I would say, likely, I, I, it, it likely did change people that, you know, Obviously, hurricanes and storm surges have been happening forever, but now that these things are shared and viewed so by so many people and in real time, like they like they weren't when uh, you know even 25 years ago, um, it I think it does help actually to bring awareness to what these things are. And I, I, one of the points that I think is really important with a, a hurricane is so many people focus on the, the, that track line, you know, a line of where did it make landfall. And a landfall point is just where the exact center of the storm crosses the coastline. And so what things, when you have a big storm event like this, hopefully it gets the message out uh, that hurricanes are not a line or a point. They're huge. And these huge impacts extend far from the center, uh, you know, 50, 100 miles away, you're still going to get storm surge and strong winds and heavy rain. So I, I think it's it's good that, you know, that the people are seeing this. It's, obviously, it's unfortunate that it happens, but it's going to happen. Uh, and so, if, but if you can get that message out and let people see what happens in a hurricane, even if you're not exactly at that landfall point, uh, yeah, I, I think that, that that is a good thing. Another question is, what's the impact of social media on the perception of hurricane impact strengths and uh, how people react? Yeah, well, that, that certainly relates closely to that. And I, um, again, I think that has, for the most part, helped uh, to get the, the awareness out. I mean, it, obviously, there, there's parts of social media that, that aren't always good. <laughs> um, we're all aware of that. But in a case like this, if we're just talking about reaching more people 
uh, with what the real-time impacts are and how far uh, widespread the impacts are, that aspect of it is, is, is good for sure. Interesting, you know, point, you know, Barry brings up a point online about how in, in Tampa Bay, it's been more than 100 years uh, since the storms had a direct impact. And of course, uh, Ian was talked there for a while and then talked away. But, you know, and here where we are in South Texas, Beulah is the last storm of record. And, you know, that's, you know, it goes back quite a while. But you talk about Tampa in 100 years, there's nobody alive that can say what happened. And, you know, here we have to go back to Beulah in 67, other places it's like that. you got to go a long way back to find people who have survived it. And, and in Tampa Bay, nobody has. So if there's no experience, how do you convey that? Yeah, and I think that's that's where a storm like Ian can be a, a handy example, because it's a recent example that people have entrenched in their minds now of seeing how fast storm surge can come in uh, you know, 15 feet of ocean in a matter of six hours or, you know, I don't know exactly how, how long it took, but that's the sort of time scale we're talking is hours for 10 to 20 feet of ocean to just move in. And it's, it's not a pleasant thing. I mean, it's, it's, it yeah. kills people. It's abrupt. You can't get away from it. I mean, some people have to hatchet their way out of their roof to escape it. Yeah. And the Southwest Florida is, uh, uh, for the rest of Southwest Florida, that may, may not have been severely damaged by Ian. It, they're in the same boat. They're on very low ground, and uh, much much of the housing stock is slab on grade. So it's any surge at all becomes vulnerable to them. Yeah, yeah, and that that problem with uh, with that long time, like a hundred years, as we were giving as an example, that that is a problem uh, because people there, it it's just human nature. I think that we can't conceptualize such extreme events we, we, just, we don't want to our, our brains just are like no that's yeah. not going to happen here yeah. that's a very real thing yeah, denial, uh, denial is the number one factor for yeah. some people that have studied this <laughs> yeah um but it eventually is a real thing it's it's infrequent it's extreme um but ask anyone who's been through an extreme event and at some point in their life they've probably said well it won't happen here and then it does so, you know, it, it, it's great if you can go 100 years in a place and not have something like that happen, but it, it, it will eventually. It's just the, the way nature works. Right, one I'm other, curious. Oh, go, go ahead. ahead. Is there one online, Tim? There's one more. It's kind of a sidebar, but, but we can go, take it real quickly. And that's Casper's uh, asking if the upwelling from Ian just west of the Florida Straits had any impact on the speed of the Gulf Stream. Well, that's a fine question. I don't <laughs> yeah. know the answer to that. Um, <laughs> possibly, but I, I, I'm going to say probably not, but I wouldn't rule it out. And the, the, the only reason I would say probably not is because you, you're the, the, the upwelling only happens fairly close to the surface of, of the ocean. And that, that loop current that goes uh, you know, between the Yucatan and Cuba does a little, well, loop in the Gulf of Mexico, and then zips between uh, Cuba and South Florida. That current is a really strong current. Um, and so it's, it's replacing itself rather quickly. There's a lot of water running through that current. And so I think a, a small hiccup for a couple days to a cooler surface, I can't, I can't imagine that that would have had an effect, but I would not say that with 100% certainty. Interesting. All right. Hal, jump back in. Yeah, Brian, a more personal question. I'm, I'm curious how you got interested in working in tropical weather professionally, right? You grew up in Pennsylvania, did grad school in Colorado. How did it end up that you ended up working so much and, and you're such an authority on a lot of this tropical weather stuff? Uh, well, I, yeah, so I, I think as, as you mentioned during the intro, I, I really got interested in hurricanes in 1985 when it is living in eastern Pennsylvania, you know, hurricanes aren't a big part of life. So when when one is suddenly introduced into your life, it's kind of a interesting topic. Uh, and it just really clicked with me. I was very fascinated by it. And it, you know, it didn't hit us head on or anything like that. We didn't get a, you know, a, a hard hit from it. But it was enough that, you know, we, we did have off of school, they kept it closed for another one or two days to check that things were safe, you know, trees and roof, 
things like that. Um, and from that point on, I was tracking hurricanes. This was before you could go online and look up storm information, of course. So um, I had to be a little more smart about how I was going to track hurricanes because, yeah, no internet back then. Um, so I, I would record things on TV, on, on the VCR, and, you know, try to catch them during the day when I could. I'd record things at night and then watch it the next morning to get the, the updates and coordinates. And um, it's a little more of an effort to, to track hurricanes in the, the mid-80s than, than it is now. Remember, like, the Weather Channel would have the Tropical Weather Outlook, I think, at 10 minutes before the top of the hour, if you missed it. You had to wait for a whole other hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and then, I, you know, I, ever since then, I, I always was interested in hurricanes. I, I didn't do uh, tropical weather or anything weather-related uh, when I went to college. But for, for, for uh, grad school, I did get into uh, to the field. And... After grad school, I was de- definitely full full force into the hurricane realm. Uh, by chance, were you, were you working with Dr. Gray when you were out at Colorado State, or were you working with someone else out there? Yeah, good good question. Uh, I was working with someone else. Um, I initially um, worked with Wayne Sch- 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 Schubert, who's uh, uh-huh. he's probably not as well known to the the average person out there, but in, in the hurricane world. He's he's very well known, um, but I I did interact and I was great friends with Bill Gray. Um, we we talked many times a week. Uh, I I took a tropical me- meteorology course from him the last time he was the instructor for it. I believe wow. it was in like the spring of '99 or something like that. So it was the last time he taught that class. And so I was in that class, and that is one of probably the best experiences that I'll be able to have is taking a class like that from someone like that, <laughs> uh, because it it was not pure class, you know. Uh, he he was infamous for going off topic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, and, but it he was, was wonderful because he would tell stories about Jewel Charney and these legends of the field. And field programs from the, the you know like the 1950s that he was involved with, and you you can't you can't take a class and include those stories. You know, it it, it was just a great gift, really. Mm-hmm. I'll bet. Uh, uh, one other thing that uh, maybe a lot of the people listening maybe maybe are aware of already your uh, the website Tropical Atlantic Headquarters. Uh, you're pretty much the the uh, uh, curator and manager of that is that correct yeah that uh that's been around <laughs> I, think I really like it it's got uh, it, there's so many uh, sources of good information out there and weather to have a site where you can uh, have a catalog of them so you can go find them right away when you need them it's just wonderful yeah thank you it's uh i think that started in 1998 or so um and i it is one of those places that it takes a little bit of time to acquaint yourself with what's on it because it is more or less a list of links. Um, but I personally still use it anytime I'm looking for stuff because I it's like I, I just know where everything is and it's all the places that I like to go to. <laughs> yeah, it, I, I'm too lazy to go through the trouble and make bookmarks on my own computer so I can go there and find it every time I need it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Brian, talking about managing stuff on the web, you have this amazing archive of hurricane radar loops. I mean, how did you get into that? And tell us a little bit about that. Oh, yeah, this this also has a bit of history. <laughs> um, that I started out of curiosity, really, I, I was wondering or I was looking for a tropical cyclone radar loop of something. It, it was either a storm in 99 or 2000, something like that. I can't remember, unfortunately, which one it was that triggered this. Um, and I just couldn't find it anywhere. I was looking on you know, every website from I, that I could think of. And, of course, there weren't as many websites then. But... Um, I just couldn't find it. So I got frustrated. And in 2001, I started to kind of make my own in real time and then archive them. And I'm like, well, okay, if I can't 
find them. I'll just make them. Not a big deal. Um, and but I, I absolutely did not anticipate that to be an ongoing thing. I thought I'd just do it here and there because I figured somebody has to have this. Like somebody's doing this, right? <laughs> uh, quickly, I quickly came to realize that I I was that person. Um, so, um, yeah, year by year that went by and I was like, I, yeah, I am seeing now that I'm that person. So I guess I have to keep doing it. So I've kept doing it. I, I've certainly missed some. I fully acknowledge that I, this is not a comprehensive list, but, um, it does have over 500 radar loops on it now. Um, they come from 30 countries. Um, and it's, that the first, the first one that I made in real time and saved was in 2001, and I've been doing it ever since. Right? Do they start? Does the archive start in 2001, or did you retroactively go back uh, beyond that? Yeah, I, that's a good question. I I did go back. There are some on that list that go back pre 2001, uh, but they are ones that I made re- retroactively. Right. I know quite a few times I've gone on that. Just someone asked, where did such and such make landfall or how, you know, what, what did the radar signature look like? What did the banding look like? It's a great archive. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. The, uh, and now that the Caribbean radar networks maturing, uh, we can almost get a history radar history of the storm pretty much in total as it crosses the Caribbean into the U S. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot there. Um, you know, some of them unfortunately blink in, in and out of, of being online from year to year uh, is just kind of work with that, but it is definitely an increasing network. And so we, we've got storms. Um, actually, I think with a uh, hurricane Ian, I, I had three or four radars that covered Ian as it went through the Caribbean into the Gulf and into the Atlantic. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's really a, uh, a long history. Like I said, there's a, there's a little over 500 radar loops in that archive now. Right. I keep going back looking for the major hurricane landfalls in the Rio Grande Valley. I, I can't find any. I, don't, I guess I guess there are none. Well, we've got a burial grounds here, Hal, that uh, keeps them away. At least not in the radar era, I guess. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's been a long, long time. We appreciate that. Hey, a couple of, Barry has a follow-up, and then I've got one more from online. And, and you know, Barry's asking about how both Irma and Ian, um, you know, threatened the Tampa Bay area. They ended up with a reverse surge, you know, to push the water out of the bay. Um, so is there a little bit of a cry wolf in Tampa? Do they think they're bulletproof? And that comes from Barry, who worked in Tampa for a while. Okay. Um, I, I'd say it certainly can influence that that mindset. Sure. Uh, and, you know, like we said during during the interview before, is it's been 100 years since an, since an actual severe impact there with a a large storm surge. That's a long time. <laughs> that's that's a really long time. Like we said, no one living has been there to to experience that. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's a natural thing, I think, to to just say, well, it it's it, it won't happen here. It, it it always goes south. We always get you know that that sort of thing. Um, but it's just it, it's a guaranteed quirk of nature that at some point it, it will happen and it could be another 50 years or it could be next year it's just yeah and more you know. and, and what would might make it worse is it could be uh, uh like a mirror image of what happened if we have a storm that for most of its life cycle the trajectory uh, consensus model forecast shows it coming in say sarasota area and then right 24 hours before it starts shifting northward and it takes a long time to move people out of the low low areas in the Tampa Bay area. And kind of the last the last question coming in that, that we want to ask, and we talked about this before the show, but it's almost Halloween. Is the 2022 hurricane season over? November 30th. <laughs> yeah. Some years, some years January 1st. <laughs> exactly. You know, is there I mean Sandy was a Halloween storm, right? I mean Sandy, the superstorm Sandy was a Halloween storm. Yeah, yeah, that made... in ten years ago. Yeah, right. remember where it formed? It formed deep in the Caribbean. This time of year, through the rest of the season, that's where we'll look for development. With with the the climate change that we're looking at, is is there any sign of the hurricane season 
lengthening. You know, I mean, we've got, you know, the Pacific season starts, you know, obviously before the Atlantic, but, you know, either end in May or in November, December. Anybody? <laughs> um, on that? I, I'll, I'll, I'll take a shot at that, I guess. Um, so there, there is talk of it. I, I don't know how close it is to, to being in, in action. And I, I think it's more of a talk of moving the beginning earlier to actually be in sync with the East Pacific season, which starts May 15th. Uh, because we have seen many of the <laughs> recent years. I think we had seven or eight years in a row where we had named storms prior to June 1st. Um, now, we didn't have hurricanes prior to June 1st. So if we're talking, you know, if we think of hurricane season as hurricanes, that we have not had. Uh, but named storms, yes, we've, we've definitely had plenty of named storms prior to, uh, to June 1st lately. Um, we haven't had too many postseason storms. We, we've had some. And, you know, uh, on a big picture, hurricane season was never intended to be 100% inclusive. It's just meant to be mostly inclusive. <laughs> um, so if, if you have some outliers now and then, that's, that's fine. That's to be expected. But when you, it, when you start reliably having outliers, they're not really outliers anymore. Uh, and so there's, there's maybe a hint of that uh, at, the, at the start of the season. So would there be anything wrong with moving to the start of the Atlantic season to May 15th? I don't think there's any harm in it. I don't know if it really provides an advantage either. <laughs> it's all a calendar. Well, Brian, we're coming up on the top of the hour. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave us with on what we've discussed today? Um, just, just a parting thought. No, I, I really, I think the big thing when it comes to looking at hurricanes and storm surge, um, the intensity, the, you know, we give it a Saffir-Simpson category rating that does not really correlate that well with storm surge. That's why storm surge was dropped from the scale. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the, the phrase, there's more to the story than the cat category is, is a phrase I like to use uh, for anything, especially storm surge, that if you have a category two hurricane, let's say, you could still get a really bad storm surge. You could still get a lot of uh, rainfall from it. So the more to the story than the cat category. Excellent. All right. Uh, Hal, final thoughts today on what we've talked about? I mean, just Brian, keep up the great work. I love following what you're doing. You're, you're a great communicator with everybody and I uh, just uh, appreciate you taking time to come on the show today. My pleasure, you guys. This has been a, a great, great chat. I appreciate it. Always fun. Bill Reed. Yep. I second what uh, Hal said there. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Uh, today and uh, hopefully we can do that again. Uh, I don't know if we had you coming down the South Padre or not this year, but that'd be great if it was. Well, you're always welcome, Brian. Glad to have you on the show Thank and, and uh, look forward to seeing you back on South Padre soon. Thank you so much. Good show today, guys. Thank you. Great conversation. And this will be turned into a podcast. So those many of you will be just listening to this later on down the line. I want to thank our sponsors, USAA, the South Padre Island Convention and Visitors Bureau, the Weather Company, Weatherboy, Walmart, the City of Brownsville, Black Magic Design, and the Port of Brownsville, all organizations and people that help make these events real and help us get the word out about uh, what's going on in the hurricane season and hopefully getting to the end of the hurricane season without much further ado but we got a month to go so a little more than that so we'll see uh brian Hal, bill thank you alex great job back at headquarters we'll see you next week 10 a.m we'll have another great program for you right here on ntwc live see you then